Let's breathe in and breathe out. We're about to get into an Imani state of mind. I'm Dr. Imani Walker. I've been practicing as a psychiatrist for over 10 years. I know that so many of y'all don't know where to start when you want to talk about your mental health. On Imani State of Mind, I'm going to have those conversations with you. Imani State of Mind is out now. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Hey, it's Karina Longworth. If you want to listen to You Must Remember This without ads, the best way to do that is by signing up for Stitcher Premium. Just go to stitcherpremium.com or the Premium tab in your Stitcher app and sign up with the promo code REMEMBER to try a free month of premium listening. You'll get ad-free listening to You Must Remember This, as well as all Stitcher and Earwolf shows, and your premium subscription supports our show directly, too. That's stitcherpremium.com, promo code REMEMBER, for a free month of premium listening. Thanks. You must remember a kiss is just a kiss, a triumph of the Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another installment in our ongoing series, Dead Blondes. Where are you going? Hollywood. Hollywood? Do you come here for excitement? I'm better than a human woman. Would you rather I be a brunette? My dress. Do you like it? I, I don't know. It's such a shock to see you dressed. Today, we're going to talk about an actress who became famous playing a character based on Marilyn Monroe. Barbara Loden won a Tony Award for playing Maggie in After the Fall, Arthur Miller's play about a blacklist survivor and his troubled marriage to a sensitive, damaged, blonde bombshell star. Miller told everyone the character of Maggie wasn't based on Marilyn Monroe, but no one believed him, including Elia Kazan, who directed the play and cast Loden in it. Kazan knew Loden and knew she would be right for the part because she had been his on-again, off-again mistress for years and had given birth to his child. Barbara Loden's acting career may have been given a boost by Kazan, who also gave her her highest-profile role in a Hollywood movie, but Loden's legacy is defined by Wanda 
an independent movie she wrote, directed, and starred in, which won a major prize at the Venice Film Festival and would go on to become a classic of a kind. Extreme in its naturalism, and yet not without a certain poeticism, it seems to answer to the films of John Cassavetes, even anticipating his 70s masterpieces. In her 40s, Barbara finally got a measure of respect as an artist in her own right, and not just the beautiful appendage or protege of a man. But this series is called Dead Blondes, so, as you may have guessed, her period of creative fulfillment didn't last long. Though Barbara gave many interviews while alive, her papers and personal files have not been made public. So, inevitably, one of our key sources today will be Elia Kazan's autobiography, published in 1988, after Barbara Loden had died. Kazan's book is very transparently his version of events, often for better but sometimes for worse, and it's marked by a haziness regarding dates. Both of these issues can be problematic, as we'll discuss further later in this episode. But Barbara didn't get to publish her own version of some events, so sometimes we have to take Kazan's version as a starting point and adjust where necessary and when we have the available facts that allow us to do so. So join us, won't you, for the story of Barbara Loden. Barbara Loden was born in North Carolina in 1932. Her parents quickly separated and her mother had to work out of town, so Barbara was raised by her mother's parents, who were hardly loving. Unlike Marilyn Monroe, Barbara did not find solace at the picture house. I hated movies as a child, Barbara would say later. People on the screen were perfect, and it made me feel inferior. And she felt pretty downtrodden and outcast as it was. I was blackballed from all the clubs, she'd say. I was never football queen, majorette, or cheerleader. I was never in any plays. That's why I came to New York, to make something of myself, something glamorous. She drifted to New York at 17 and became a model. A model could become famous without doing anything, just by looking good, she thought. Unfortunately, I didn't look that good. She did look pretty good, though, and next she became a showgirl, working as Candy Loden at the Copacabana. For five years, she took acting classes without actually trying to find acting work. What got me started in acting lessons was a need to get over being withdrawn and inhibited, she'd say later. It was like group therapy. Finally, Loden joined the cast of The Ernie Kovac Show. She got the job through her new husband, a film distributor named Larry Joachim. And then, in the mid-1950s, she met Elia Kazan. Kazan, at age 48, was in the midst of one of the greatest brief runs of success enjoyed by any director in Hollywood history up to that point. His last three films had been nominated for 18 Oscars and won nine of them including the Best Director Prize for Kazan for On the Waterfront. But he wasn't happy. As Kazan wrote in his autobiography, From the mid-1940s through the 50s and on into the first two years of the 60s, I was the most successful director at work in America, but I was in a turmoil of revolt 
and it was against myself. I didn't like my public person. I wasn't the man I wanted to be. Kazan would memorialize what he remembered as his first encounter with Barbara in extremely similar ways in his autobiography and in his novel, The Arrangement. The gist is that Barbara showed up at a studio where he was working, and he believed she was there just to see and be seen by him. I was to find out that Barbara would hunt just the way a man does, he would write as if to impress on her that he would not be passive prey, Kazan followed her into the ladies' room and tried to have sex with her there. She told him, no decent woman does it the first time she meets a man. She told him to try again the next time. Barbara and Elia, both married to other people, fell into an affair that, according to Kazan, both believed was casual and purely sexual. They'd meet at lunchtime in anonymous hotel rooms, with Kazan usually leaving before she had a chance to put her clothes back on. But it didn't burn out the way most of his affairs did, and after several years, not only was Kazan still infatuated with Barbara, but he was inspired by her. Barbara, he wrote, was feisty with men, fearless on the streets, dubious of all ethical principles, and capable of the household trades a country girl must know. Kazan used her as a kind of consultant on his movie Wild River, which put Montgomery Clift's city bureaucrat in conflict with a community full of country folk who mostly just wanted to be left alone. Kazan admiringly described Barbara as a hillbilly who was as wild as the river I was making the film about. Kazan took Loden with him on location to Tennessee, casting her in a small part in the film's ensemble to cover for the fact that she was his mistress. Wild River was misunderstood by its studio and barely released. But Kazan's next movie, Splendor in the Grass, was another huge hit and Oscar contender. This would be the Hollywood film in which Barbara would have her most significant role as Ginny, pleasure-seeking sister of Warren Beatty's sexually frustrated football star. In a world in which there are only good girls and bad girls, Ginny has found herself put in the box of the bad girl. And much to the chagrin of the keepers of that box, she deals with this desperately unhappy situation by refusing to let anyone forget about the hypocrisy that rules their lives. The movie turns on a scene where Beatty's bud uses his fists to save a drunken Ginny from being gang-raped at a New Year's Eve party. Barbara disappears from the movie after that, dying off-screen, but the memory of her hangs over the whole film, not least when Natalie Wood's Deanie, in the midst of being driven mad by the era's contradictory sexual mores, takes on Ginny as a role model. A movie about sexual frenzy seeping out from under the fist of repression, Splendor in the Grass was made on an incredibly sexually charged set. Natalie Wood, married to Robert Wagner at the time, had an affair with Beatty, who was making his big screen debut as a fully formed Warren Beatty. And Kazan and Loden flagrantly carried on their affair on set, not even able to use the location this time as the cover. They shot Splendor in the Grass in New York, where both of their spouses lived. In 1962, Barbara got pregnant. 
Though she was still married to Larry Joaquim, the baby was Kazan's. She told him she was going to keep it, and he gave her his blessing. Then, Kazan went to Turkey to start researching the most personal film of his career thus far, America, America. At first, Barbara accompanied him on this trip. But after a while, she decided to leave, and they broke off their affair. Barbara returned to her husband, still carrying Kazan's baby. Back in New York, hanging around her house too pregnant to do much else, Barbara read a story in the newspaper about a woman who was sentenced to 20 years in prison for being the accomplice to a bank robbery. Unexpectedly, this woman thanked the judge for her prison sentence. I was fascinated by what kind of girl would be that passive and dumb, Loden said later. When she soon thereafter saw Jean-Luc Godard's Breathless, she was inspired to start writing her own film about that kind of girl. She was able to bring plenty of her own experience to it. She could see herself living the same life as that woman, had she not escaped where she was from. And even after she had escaped and was living that glamorous life she had dreamed of, it was as if she had spent all of her reserved self-possession on just making the move. She fell into a paralyzing fear of not giving other people, mostly men, what they wanted from her. I got into the whole thing of being a dumb blonde, she'd say later. I didn't think anything of myself, so I succumbed to the whole role. I never knew who I was, or what I was supposed to do. Barbara was enormously pregnant when Kazan called and asked her if she'd come audition for a play he was directing as the first production of a new theater program at Lincoln Center. The play was after the fall, and we've talked about it before. It was Arthur Miller's mashup of his anxieties and guilt regarding the blacklist, the Holocaust, and his marriage to Marilyn Monroe. The Marilyn character, named Maggie, is what Barbara was auditioning for. And it doesn't seem like Kazan had to really pull any strings to get her cast. Everyone involved with the show realized right away that she was perfect for the part. Even Kazan's longtime wife, Molly Kazan, said, The girl is excellent. As Kazan pointed out, Barbara and Marilyn came from very similar childhoods. Both had been pawned off on people who weren't their parents when they were young. Both had grown up to feel that their only source of worth was their beauty and sexuality. And thus, both could be incredibly needy. And, as Kazan put it, difficult to control. After the Fall didn't make it to the stage until early 1964, by which time Barbara had already given birth to a second child, this one apparently sired by her husband Larry Joaquim, who she was still with, although she and Kazan had resumed their affair. There were other setbacks, too. During the rehearsal period, the nation was thrown into mourning by John F. Kennedy's assassination. Shortly after that, Kazan's wife of many decades, Molly Kazan, suddenly died of an aneurysm. Barbara, who, as the long-term mistress, had naturally seen Molly as a kind of enemy over the years, sent Elia a note that read, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Please forgive me for my stupidity and all the worst things about me that may have upset you. 
With its moralistic look back on the last 25 years of intertwined cultural and political history, all through the lens of Arthur Miller's personal experience, After the Fall was perhaps the right play at the right time. Although not all of the reviews were positive, Miller was charged with exploiting his dead ex-wife, it was definitely a big star-is-born moment for Barbara Loden, who had never had a role of this size before. It was both a blessing and a curse that the public perceived Barbara to be playing the most famous blonde of the century. Life magazine ran photos of the play, taken by Miller's third wife, Inga Morath, in a spread headlined, Marilyn's Ghost Takes the Stage. Barbara's performance, the magazine wrote, was frequently a Monroe impersonation, and the effect was uncanny, as if a ghost had been conjured up. Mr. Miller can keep on repeating that he was not writing about the real Marilyn Monroe, and that the comparison is being carried much too far. But the play itself invites the comparison. Not invites, insists on, really. Miller has given Maggie almost no camouflage. Barbara insisted she wasn't trying to do an impersonation. If I ever thought it was about her, I wouldn't be able to do it, she'd say. I have to believe it's happening to me personally. Suddenly, the toast of the town, Loden seemed oblivious to the idea of using her success to climb to a higher level of success. I can't get a better job than I have, she'd say. Unless you want to make money, what does Hollywood have for you? This was how Barbara felt as the spotlight of new celebrity was shining bright on her face. But as that spotlight started to move on, she wanted it back. Though she would later win the Tony Award for the performance, the peak of Barbara's ability to enjoy her after-the-fall spawn stardom came on February 1st, 1964, when her face, in character as Maggie, took up the full cover of the Saturday Evening Post. With Barbara still basking in the glow of seeing her own face on all the newsstands, it was like being ripped out of a dream when the next edition of the weekly magazine came out with someone else on the cover. It crystallized Barbara's feeling that she was letting her moment, her best and maybe only chance to become a real star, fritter away. Her next job was to be a three-line part in a subsequent Kazan-directed play, The Changeling. Barbara resented Gazan for giving her such a small part after her breakthrough, as though he was trying to put her back in her place. He certainly wasn't doing anything, in her mind, to help her get to the next level. By now, she had left her husband. Eventually, she gave Kazan an ultimatum. Either we marry, or we break up for good. Kazan felt guilty for how little he had given Barbara over their years together, Around this time, he met their son, Leo, for the first time, and the kid was three years old. But he was afraid to marry her. Too many of his friends had suggested to him that she was a social climber, a gold digger, and after seven years, he was no longer as attracted to her as he had been. When Kazan prevaricated, Barbara walked out on him. I feel sorry for you, she told him because I don't think you'll be able to start a new life. But I will. Given her genuine moxie and determination, she probably could have. 
but she didn't. Within a year, Kazan and Loden were back together and living together with their son for the first time. In 1966, they went on safari together in Africa, and two things happened. Kazan decided to marry her, and a friend of theirs named Harry Schuster, who owned the game preserves they were visiting, offered to give Loden about $100,000 with which to make her own movie. Kazan would complain that Barbara changed after they got married. Perhaps one of the reasons for the change was that right around the time of the wedding, Kazan published The Arrangement, a novel transparently about the real midlife crisis he had suffered, a crisis that coincided with his affair with Barbara. There was a character in the book named Gwen, who was so clearly modeled on Barbara in some easily identifiable ways that the fact that Kazan ascribed to Gwen extremely intimate details such as her, quote, fragrant but not heavily scented pubic hair, made Barbara extremely uncomfortable and angry that this man that she had been with for so long, who had finally legitimized their relationship through marriage, was exploiting her in this way. Feeling trapped, Barbara became openly antagonistic of the role she had found herself in second wife to a great man who was himself allowed to drain their relationship for his own creative purposes, while she was supposed to be satisfied having no creative agency of her own. By 1968, a McCall's magazine profile of Loden was lightly tisk-tisking her for quote-unquote having it all, but wanting more. Barbara Loden has youth, beauty, talent, a Tony Award, her name in who's who, and the fascinating Elia Kazan for a husband. What else could she ask for? Everything, she says. She had certainly struggled as an actress over the previous few years, and the association with Kazan had not protected her from professional frustrations and humiliations. Other than The Changeling and a TV production of The Glass Menagerie, she hadn't been seen in much since after the fall. Everything after the role of Maggie was just superficial, she explained. I got a lot of attention, but I didn't enjoy the fame and sort of became a recluse. I had two sons to raise, and acting just seemed rather unimportant compared with life. This doesn't necessarily ring true, given that Barbara Loden definitely tried to work in Hollywood during those years. There were three films which could have changed Barbara's fates as a movie actress, but instead, they combined to sentence her to movie jail. She had been cast in a key role in the Burt Lancaster melodrama The Swimmer, and then director Frank Perry was fired, and his replacement, Sidney Pollack, reshot Barbara's scenes with another actress. Barbara also shot a movie called Fade In, in which she starred, as one publication put it, as a sophisticated film cutter who falls in love with a Moab cattleman played by Burt Reynolds, a talented newcomer. In fact, it was one of Burt Reynolds' first films. The movie was filmed as a kind of experimental docudrama on the set of a western called Blue, which starred Terrence Stamp, and which was shooting on location in Moab. I've been able to learn very little about Faden, other than that Paramount chief Robert Evans allegedly refused to release it, and director Judson Taylor, unhappy with the way the film was being edited, took his name off of it. 
When the movie was eventually shown on television, it was credited to Alan Smithy, a pseudonym created for the director of the Richard Widmark movie, Death of a Gunfighter, and from then on applied to any movie that the director, with the support of his guild, refuses to take ownership of. Because Fade In was made before Death of a Gunfighter, technically, it is the earliest Alan Smithy movie. Somehow, Fade In is currently available on DVD, in a terrible transfer from what appears to be VHS, under the title Iron Cowboy. It's worth watching as a curiosity, especially for fans of young shirtless Burt Reynolds, but it's kind of bizarrely edited, and the performances are not really directed, and it doesn't give you much faith that Barbara Loden could have been a traditional movie star. Barbara got a lot of bad press for ending up on the cutting room floor of The Swimmer and on the shelf in Fade In. In June 1968, the entertainment columnist Joyce Haber snarked that Barbara Loden's career should be retitled Fade Out. But the real heartbreak was when Kazan, now her husband after keeping her as his mistress and secret baby mama for years, cut her from the cast of the film adaptation of The Arrangement. To hear Kazan tell it later, his ideal casting for the film would have been Marlon Brando in the role based on Kazan and Barbara Loden in the role based on Barbara Loden. But Brando backed out of the project after the assassination of Martin Luther King, which Brando felt devastated by. Kazan replaced Brando with Kirk Douglas, and then he decided that Douglas and Loden didn't seem like a good fit. So he replaced Barbara with Faye Dunaway. This was the most insulting thing Kazan could have done, Barbara believed, and not just because he had replaced the still gorgeous Barbara with a younger, more glamorous model. Barbara Loden knew Faye Dunaway. Dunaway had been her understudy on After the Fall. Barbara had told her friend and acting student, Rutanya Alda, that Faye had been, quote, always up in the rafters screwing somebody. And Barbara had, quote, wondered if she ever paid attention to what was going on with the performance she was supposed to be understudying. But when she saw Dunaway in the arrangement, the only credit Barbara was willing to give the other actress was for her powers of observation. She's just a lousy imitation of me, Barbara complained to Kazan. He would later believe that this was the final straw in their marriage. Both husband and wife began seeing other people. Kazan claimed that when he suggested they divorce, Barbara refused, saying, I can get more out of you when we're married. Kazan insists Barbara was talking about more money. But it seems like she was less interested in money than in the legitimacy offered by his name. Barbara would proceed to make a movie that literally no one wanted her to make. She would use her platform as an award-winning actress, but maybe more as the wife of a powerful director, to shine a light on people with no power. Specifically, poor white women in rural America with no education, no talent, Nothing special about them whatsoever. This movie, which she would call Wanda, after the character she'd play in it, 
was the movie Barbara had begun writing and thinking about years before, during her first pregnancy, when she had read that article about the female accomplice who thanked the judge for sending her to prison. Wanda, the character, was an example of what Kazan called a class of women known as floaters. They float like debris. Loden would call her an ordinary person. Both Pauline Kale and Rex Reed described Wanda as an ignorant slut. In the LA Times piece in which Reed slurred Wanda as such, he also quoted Loden as saying, It's the story of my life. And then Reed condescendingly added, One hardly knows whether to laugh or cry. Though Kazan would later take credit for writing the first rough draft of the screenplay, even he acknowledged that Barbara rewrote that skeleton and brought life to it. Her own life. Barbara merged that woman's circumstances with her own experiences, growing up in rural America, to create a character, Wanda, who passively allows her husband to leave her and take the kids, and who then ends up latching on to a petty criminal. But it was also about floating into Kazan's world. And, at least at first, going along to get along in a world in which she had no power. Throughout her 20s, Barbara would say, I had no identity of my own. I just became whatever I thought people wanted me to become. She was cast in After the Fall, the year she turned 30. As far as the men Wanda encounters believe, all she has to offer is her body. And this is the life that could have been Loden's had she not been beautiful and talented, and most importantly, had gotten out. If I had stayed there, I would have gotten a job at Woolworths, she'd say. I would have gotten married at 17 and had some children and would have gotten drunk every Friday and Saturday night. Fortunately, I escaped. But where she escaped, too... Barbara was still made to feel like her sexuality was her only asset. Part of the impetus to make Wanda was to prove what else she could do. Wanda was shot in 16mm for about $115,000. This paid for about 20 hours of film stock and a crew of four, including Loden and Nick Perferes, who was credited as the film's cinematographer and editor, but who would later say that the movie was really co-directed by him. He took credit for composing 99% of the shots. One thing no man in her life was able to take credit for were the performances in the movie. Loden and her co-star, Michael Higgins, were professional actors who drew heavily on their ability to improvise. Every day, Barbara wanted to try new things and take the performances in new directions, and she ably guided the rest of the cast, which was made up of non-professionals. On set in unglamorous Pennsylvania, Loden, Kazan, and her two children lived in a cabin. Kazan wrote, And many days, Barbara took the kids to the set with her. She told Rex Reed that her husband wouldn't have been any help on the set. Elia had never made a low-budget movie with a three-man crew and natural lighting himself, so he didn't know what to do. The stripped-down style and production process of Wanda was an implicit critique of the Hollywood system, and especially of the incredibly expensive, superficially exact depictions of poor people and criminals. A lot of Hollywood types hate it, 
Barbara acknowledged, because it's not expensive and technically perfect. But I was just trying to be true to myself and not copy anyone. She fiercely opposed the idea of slickness of any kind. She stressed that Wanda was not meant to be seen as romantic. I would not call it a love story, she said. It's more a story of the lumpen, the poor drifters of the world who simply exist, leading totally pointless lives. She dismissed comparisons to Bonnie and Clyde, the recent hit starring and produced by her old on-screen brother Warren Beatty, and her understudy-slash-nemesis Faye Dunaway. People like that, Barbara said, would never get into those situations or lead that kind of life. They were too beautiful. Wanda is anti-Bonnie and Clyde. It was also, essentially, anti-Elia Kazan and his kind of heightened, florid-filmed melodrama, including films that glamorized and romanticized working-class or rural people, such as On the Waterfront, A Streetcar Named Desire, and a film Loden had had a front-seat view of, Wild River. If Kazan had been one shadow hanging over Loden's professional life, the other shadow that she needed to shake in order to stand on her own was Marilyn Monroe's. In Wanda, Barbara counteracted the notion that the only successful performance she could give was a Marilyn impression by going back to the thing that Barbara and Marilyn fundamentally had in common. They were nobodies, with no grounding in family and no sense of self, who ran away from their pasts and attempted to erase them as they transformed themselves into, as Barbara had put it, something glamorous. Wanda premiered at the Venice Film Festival in September 1970, and there, Loden was the toast of the town. She won the International Critics' Prize. She was treated seriously by major publications like the LA Times, who, more often than not, miraculously, allowed her to explain herself without condescending to her ambitions or her achievement. Some of the quotes she gave during this period are still, today, totally inspiring as rallying cries. I don't want to get into the system as it exists, went one refrain. I want to create my own corner. It all comes down to this. If you don't want to be a part of what exists, you've got to create your own reason for existence. If you needed more proof that Barbara Loden was the coolest girl in the world circa 1972, go Google the time she was on the Mike Douglas show as the invited guest of Yoko Ono. After talking with Douglas, Ono, and John Lennon and showing a clip of Wanda on national TV, Barbara then joined the band to play Ono's song, Midsummer New York. Barbara stood smilingly behind John Lennon, playing the bongo. Kazan's statements after Loden's death would do much to try to puncture the image Barbara put forth of herself as an independent artist. He claimed that he not only wrote Wanda and essentially acted as its producer, but that Barbara had asked him to direct the movie, and he refused. In his book, Kazan structures his storytelling to imply that he shot his own low-budget anti-Hollywood movie, The Visitors, with Nick Preferis serving as cinematographer and editor, before Loden made Wanda, 
And only after Kazan had already worked with him did Barbara then take on Nick as both a collaborator and a lover. Perferis acknowledged in a fairly recent interview that it was Kazan who introduced him to Loden. He said, Can you work with a woman? Nick remembered. And I didn't see any reason why I couldn't. But the timing doesn't check out. Wanda was finished and exhibiting in Venice by September 1970, and Kazan's own files show that the script for The Visitors, which was written by his son Chris, was dated November 1970. The Visitors did not premiere in the U.S. until early 1972, after Barbara had done a lot of press for Wanda, in which she claimed that her famous husband was currently making his own no-budget, non-union movie, and that her experience on Wanda made her the guinea pig that proved to Kazan that this kind of movie could be done. So, somebody at some point was twisting the truth. Was it Barbara Loden, declaring her independence from her husband in 1971? Or was it Kazan, writing in 1988, when Loden wasn't around to protest? I'm more inclined to believe Loden's version of the story. Maybe Kazan was just innocently misremembering the order of events. But given how their relationship ultimately ended, it feels like whether it was intentional or not, it was cruel for Kazan to switch these productions around, and in so doing, rob Barbara Loden of a share of ingenuity. It was an incredible thing for a woman married to a Hollywood director to decide that she wanted to make an experimental, no-frills film about the real America. It would be a different thing for her to do that if her husband had had the idea first. What we do know is that after Wanda, Barbara and Nick Preferas began writing new movies together and trying to get them made. In 1970, when the movie Love Story was a big hit, and before Wanda opened unspectacularly in American theaters, they announced that their next movie would openly refute the tagline of the Ally McGraw-Ryan O'Neill pick. It would deal with Loden's housewife's character's relationship with three men, and it would be called Love Means Always Having to Say You're Sorry. This movie was never made. Neither was a movie Barbara announced in Earl Wilson's column in April 1975, in which Loden said that she would star as, quote, a movie beauty who caused men to fight for her favors and then became a wino and eventually a cheap call girl. Wilson added that this movie beauty, quote, was in headlines involved with famous male movie stars about 25 years ago. Why neither Wilson nor Loden would come out and say that it was Barbara Payton they were talking about, I don't know, but it sure sounds like her. If replacing Loden with Dunaway in the arrangement hadn't all but ended the Loden-Kazan marriage, to hear Kazan tell it, the success Barbara enjoyed with Wanda would have done it. Though the film wasn't commercially successful, it was well-liked and respected in the avant-garde and academic worlds. Barbara didn't see Wanda as a feminist film. She had no idea what feminism was when she made it. And not all feminists immediately perceived Barbara as a hero. Because even if she had made her own movie, she had made a movie about a totally disempowered character. But Barbara was embraced by film schools and colleges, which she toured, showing the movie and giving lectures. And she began teaching acting in New York to students including Christopher Reeve, who sought Barbara's help as he prepared to become Superman. 
Even though she never made another movie, Barbara succeeded in creating a professional life for herself that was independent from Kazan. And maybe because of that victory, she stopped doing anything just to please him. As he noted disapprovingly, she stopped dressing conventionally sexily and gave up on doing housework. Again, Kazan suggested they divorce. And this time, Barbara agreed. And then, she found a lump in her breast. Barbara's initial instinct was to try to avoid chemotherapy, radiation, or surgery. She started seeing all variety of specialists and alternative practitioners. A Japanese doctor who put her on a macrobiotic diet told her that the real problem was her liver. She visited a doctor in Cleveland who told her he could remove the lump in her breast without having to do a full mastectomy. In the course of that surgery, it was discovered that the cancer had spread to her lymph nodes. She consulted various spiritualists. She submitted to radiation at a clinic in Boston. She was urged to try chemotherapy, but still drew the line there. And then finally, she gave in and tried that too. It seemed to help, at least at first. It had become clear that the Japanese specialist had been right. The cancer was in her liver. When she lost her hair, she'd go out in public wearing her Marilyn wig from after the fall. This dragged on for two years. And during all of this, she presented as healthy a face as possible to the outside world. Almost no one knew she was sick. She continued to teach, throw parties, and even went with Kazan to visit Jimmy Carter at the White House. In February 1980, Barbara produced the play Come Back to the Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean. And when she had to fire actress Sandy Dennis, Loden stepped into her part. She got through the run of the play with no one the wiser, even though Kazan would have to help her up the stairs when they go home at night. Then she started having seizures and soon her ability to live a normal life was gone. She spent the last five weeks of her life in the hospital, where only Kazan and Nick Perferes were allowed to see her. She died on September 5th, 1980, at the age of 48. Her last words, according to Kazan, were, Shit! 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 Next week we will bring you the final Dead Blondes story. Join us then, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. This episode was written, narrated, and produced by Karina Longworth. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our editor is Sam Dingman, and our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. For more information about this episode and other episodes, please go to our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. There you'll find show notes for our episodes, which include many details on our research sources. If you like the podcast, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can, 
You can find us on all subscription services, including things like Spotify and Stitcher and many more. And of course, we're on iTunes. And if you subscribe to the show there and rate us and review us there, it really helps other people find it. You can find us on Twitter at RememberThisPod, and we're on Facebook and Instagram, too. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. Wake up in the morning, my heart cold in fear. Midsummer New York, my heart shakes in terror. The best wet and sweat and mess up my New York street. <laughs>